0: Welcome to Simplify. I'm Ben Schumann-Stoller.
1: And I'm Caitlin Schiller. Simplify is for anybody who's taken a close look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health, and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this.
0: In today's episode, we'll hear Caitlin's conversation with the co-author of Sex at Dawn, Christopher Ryan. Sex at Dawn is a book that explores human sexual evolution and where we come from in terms of our ancient ancestors. And it's not where you might think.
1: Right. It turns out we're not pterodactyls on the inside.
0: Which is good, even though you can do an impression of a pterodactyl.
1: I can, but maybe we'll save that for later.
0: Good, thank God. Okay, <laughs> but so Sex at Dawn, the book, has gotten sort of a reputation as a scandalous book about sex, I think it's fair to say. But today's episode isn't about scandalous intercourse or tips and tricks or anything like that. It's about sex, but not really sex as you might have expected. This is about sexual evolution and evolutionary psychology.
1: Yeah, chimps and bonobos.
0: Bonobos. I actually had to look it up uh, because... I know about them, they're like monkeys, but I wasn't exactly sure what the difference is between bonobos and chimpanzees. So, real quick, to clear the air bonobos are believed to be the closest living relative of humans, they're found only in Congo. The Democratic Republic of Congo. And this is something interesting I learned about why that's important, because it's hard to reach the Congo, both because of political reasons and geographical reasons. So, like, humans studied and understood bonobos a lot later, which is why we don't really hear about them that much. And it's why we don't understand that much about them, which is super important, as we'll find out today.
1: Right. Because, behaviorally, we're actually much more bonobo than we are chimp. Ryan goes into depth about that in this conversation, and specifically how we have a semi-secret primate relative, what that means for our present, and what we might not have realized about our sexual past because of it.
0: Yeah, like I don't, I still don't totally understand. Are we siblings? Are we cousins? Are we brothers? So I'm I'm curious to hear about where we're at with the monkeys.
1: Yeah, family's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is about sexual evolution, and a more expansive understanding of this history can help you breed a little easier. Plus, at the end, Ben and I will be back, and we will compose a book list for further reading around the conversation that Christopher and I have.
0: Yeah. Then let's get right into it. Here's Caitlin Schiller and Christopher Ryan. See you guys in the bookend.
1: Would you mind introducing yourself, Chris?
2: My name's Christopher Ryan. I'm co-author of Sex at Dawn, uh, which I published together with my wife, Casilda Jetta, who's a psychiatrist from Mozambique. And uh, I do a podcast called Tangentially Speaking.
1: Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask you: You've done tons and tons of talks and interviews, and, and a TED Talk about the research in your book. What do you What do you not get to talk about enough?
2: <laughs> oh man! Uh, well, as far as sexuality, I think I get to talk about everything as much as I could possibly want, and then some. (laughs) Uh, I never thought I would get tired of talking about sex, but sometimes I do feel that way. Um, But I guess part of the book that maybe I feel needs more attention is the parts that aren't really directly related to sexuality. Uh, In the center of the book, there's a a part where we talk about other parts of life, uh, uh, economics and politics and raising children and things that are only sort of um, tangentially related to sexual interaction. And a lot of people wrote to me and said that was the most interesting part of the book for them. And so it's kind of, and I was aware of that because you can't talk about the way a society handles sexuality without at least acknowledging that everything's interrelated. So, Uh, The way our ancestors handled sexual interaction was part of a suite of behaviors that included egalitarianism and women's autonomy and and status equal to men's and the way uh, they treated children and spirituality and all sorts of other aspects of life. So my next book is an expansion of that material, an expanded look at that, and that'll be out uh, probably later this year. It's called Civilized to Death.
1: Wow, that is a great title, I have to say. Um, I think that one of, one of my favorite quotes from the book, or I don't think I can directly quote it right now, I have a bookmark in there somewhere, but it was, uh, in matriarchal societies, people get laid a lot more often.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's paraphrasing <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's also, I mean, we also sort of made a point to talk about how matriarchy doesn't look like the inverse of patriarchy. Okay. So, a, a lot of scientists who have looked at the data or or you know, anthropologists or travelers who have been with societies that we might refer to as matriarchies uh didn't recognize them as such because they were looking for societies in which women dominate men in ways that are sort of the inverse reflection of the way men often dominate women. Hmm. And what we find is that that isn't how women wield power. And so it's it's often unrecognizable to scientists because they'll be looking for women to be oppressive in the way that men often are in, in patriarchal societies. And in fact, what happens in societies where women's social standing is equal to or we might argue a little higher than men's is that the societies are far more collaborative and uh, relaxed and rather than using violence for one gender to dominate another, they're using different levers of power to avoid dominance. And this aligns very closely with discussions of bonobos and chimpanzees, our two closest primate relatives, in the sense that chimpanzees are male-dominant species And we see things that are very recognizable as male dominance, things like what appear to be coerced sexual interaction or rape. We see um, violence, lots of violence between males. We see uh, young being harassed, sometimes killed by males. Um, And then if you look at bonobos, you don't see any of those things. You see there's never been an observed case of rape or murder between bonobos in the wild or in captivity. And they are female dominant species, but Franz Duvall summed it up really well. He's a primatologist who studied both species extensively. And he said that chimps use violence to get sex and bonobos use sex to avoid violence. Hmm. So in in the female dominated societies where the females aren't being harassed, they're much more sexually receptive, and obviously things are better for both sexes
1: well, it seemed to me that that one of the central conceits of your your book is that sex isn't about reproduction
2: yeah not not primarily yeah
1: so then can you talk about what sex is about if it isn't reproduction
2: I mean to understand what that means it's important you know most people don't know a lot about the sex lives of other animals but In fact, almost all mammals only have sex when the female is ovulating, meaning when the female is likely to get pregnant. So, you know, pandas, for example, which we're always hearing about in the news and, you know, their tortured sex lives, I think a female panda only ovulates like a few days a year, three or four days out of a year. Oh, man. Yeah. it's a lot of pressure on those days. Yeah, exactly. If you, you know, if you have a cold, you're in big trouble.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or a headache, my God. Yeah,
2: exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so most, and when I say most, I'm saying all mammals except a very few exceptions, three or four or five exceptions, have sex only for reproductive purposes. And that makes sense because if you think about it, when you're having sex, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to predators. There's increased risk of disease transmission. You're spending energy that could be spent searching for food or taking care of young or, you know, other sort of more practical applications. So why would a species be having sex when it's not going to result in pregnancy? Um, What you find, for example, is in gorillas, let's say, a very closely related primate to humans, uh, gorillas have sex somewhere between 10 and 15 times per birth, Hmm. And that's typical of mammals. Uh, whereas humans have sex upwards of a thousand times per birth, typically. Wow. Yeah. And so obviously, you're doing something a thousand times per success. That's not the function of that activity, right? So, why do humans have sex if not primarily for reproduction? The argument we make in Sex at Dawn is that sex has been co-opted in our species for social purposes Mm -hmm. it bonds the social group together so we take care of one another's children we share food we share access to all resources so having an open interactive sexual network fits into that because we're sharing everything else the and this by the way this isn't uh controversial, this idea that hunter-gatherers share access to resources and were politically egalitarian and so on. This is all standard anthropological understanding of hunter-gatherers. The only thing that we did in Sex at Dawn that was controversial is we said, okay, then why would sexuality be the one exception to this? If hunter-gatherers are taking care of each other's children, sharing their food, sharing access to the spirit world and resources and shelter and everything else they had. Why would their sexual partners be the one thing that is being hoarded and considered private property and it just makes no sense when you look at the actual configuration of hunter-gatherer societies, hmm. and when you know in *Sex at Dawn*, we lay out a lot of evidence from anthropological research and first contact situations, and you know travelers and so on, showing that in fact, before missionaries come in and shame everybody into this sort of crazy, unnatural behavior that we recognize. In the West or in civilized societies, what you find is a very free, relaxed sexuality, whether you're talking about the islands of the South Pacific or the first people Columbus came into contact with or you know, trappers and um, Jesuit missionaries in the 1600s in Canada and uh, all over the world. So the aberration is the way we look at sex as, and, and our sexual partners as private property. That's what's different in in human behavior. The sort of standard uh, for pre-agricultural people is much more relaxed and open and autonomous approach to sex.
0: Hey guys, it's Ben. I'm interrupting real quick just to say this is season three of Simplify, which means we have two other seasons. And if you're new to Simplify, welcome. Make yourself at home. But there's plenty of other episodes for you to check out from everything from psychology, business, how to listen, sex, relationships, even food, which we like a lot here. So go check it out. You can find the rest of the episodes on Blinkist.com simplify. All right, let's get back to the rest of the interview with Christopher Ryan and Caitlin Chiller.
1: Civilized to Death, is that's what your new book is called. It sounds like it's coming out of really current issues. Is that where Sex at Dawn came from, too? What were you thinking about or concerned with then that, that prompted that book to come out?
2: Uh, yeah, I think the, the sort of origins of Sex at Dawn were probably the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky situation. And I was just perplexed by the fact that that seemed to be a totally consensual situation, and yet both of them were being humiliated publicly, as well as Hillary, for doing something that seemed to me to be relatively innocent. I I didn't really see how anyone had done anything horrible there. And so I kept thinking about that, and and I read a book called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright that came out around that time, And it was like the new science of evolutionary psychology. And I read that book and it seemed to make perfect sense to me. It explained that men and women have different reproductive agendas and women forever have been trading fidelity for protection and status and meat or whatever from men. And it sort of laid out this very Darwinian understanding of how men and women have evolved differently because women have very few opportunities to be pregnant and give birth in their lives, whereas men can have thousands of children, you know, uh, the whole sort of sperm versus ovum ratio argument. And it explained everything so cleanly. And at the time I was living in San Francisco, and I was surrounded with a lot of very smart, outspoken, politically aware women. And so when I told them about this great book I'd read, most of the women just sort of rolled their eyes and said, oh, man, that's such Victorian male bullshit. <laughs> and they said, yeah, Chris, that's that's ridiculous. You know, this idea that women have sex to get things from men, that's you know, that only happens because that's the only way we can get things. You know, it, mm. we, that's not why we have sex by nature. We have sex, we like sex. It feels good. We, you know, I can have more orgasms than you can, you know. So, so I went back and I started looking at the research that Wright had been talking about in his book. You know, I started looking up his sources and. That's when I first came across bonobos, and I'd never heard of bonobos. Most people had never heard of bonobos. So here are these bonobos, which are just as relevant to any discussion of human nature as chimpanzees are, because we share the same amount of DNA with bonobos as we do with chimpanzees. And yet Wright's book and and most of the other books that I had read are full of references to chimpanzees, the violence, the male dominance, the warfare, and all this kind of stuff but have very little reference to bonobos if they mention them at all. So that struck me as very strange. Like, wait a minute, this is science, and yet here are two relevant examples, and they all talk about one, and they leave the other unmentioned. That doesn't make sense. That's not science. That's politics.
1: Why did that happen? Why were bonobos stricken from the record?
2: Well, I think on one level, because they're embarrassing to scientists because they're so hypersexual uh-huh um in fact, I think it was Franz Duvall who told me about I think it was National Geographic sent a film crew to Congo to do a story about bonobos and they went to um there's a rehabilitation center there where they raise babies whose mothers have been killed by hunters and so they had all these bonobos in a you know big area there and the film crew set up and and they said well okay when you know why are they all having sex we you know when they stop having sex then we can start filming and the the primatologist said well no you don't understand they have sex all the time (laughs) and the film crew were like well but we can't show this on television well and so they ended up Flying to Congo for nothing.
1: That's so puritanical.
2: Right. So part of it is that, that they're so hypersexual and people are so puritanical, including scientists, that they just don't want to talk about it. But I think the other reason is that bonobos undermine the dominant narrative of human nature and human evolution. So the the narrative... Is so important as I said before. It's not science; it's politics, and a lot of this discussion of human nature and human evolution is very much politicized, but in a way that's unacknowledged. So, so many of these things are being presented as well. That's just the way it is. That's science says this, but when you really start to look at it, no, science doesn't say that. Patriarchy says that. You know, a racist. Um, Western view of the world, colonial colonialist view of the world says that this is a very politicized discussion.
1: Mm-hmm. You say that sex isn't used just for reproduction; sex is used as sort of social lubrication. Another thing that you say in the book that I I really enjoyed was, "Don't take sex so seriously." What does that mean for society as it is today?
2: You know, one of the fundamental motivations for writing Sex at Dawn for Casilda and me was to address a lot of unnecessary suffering around sexuality and relationships. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, she came into contact with many people who were suffering from, you know, various forms of trauma related to their own sexuality or to relationships. And the, the problem that we found is that The premise that people are working from is fundamentally inaccurate. So if your premise is that human beings have always lived in little nuclear families and mate for life, and that when you find your one and only partner, all your interest and appetite for other sexual partners will evaporate, if that's your premise— And you find that a year or two into a relationship, you're having dreams or fantasies about other people, then your conclusion will be that either there's something deeply wrong with you or your partner or that your relationship is flawed. So working from that premise, people are making horribly destructive decisions for themselves and for their children and social fabric. A more accurate premise is, we believe, that human beings evolved in relatively promiscuous, intimate social groups where people were having sex with different partners at different times, sometimes different partners in the same week, sometimes, you know, over their lifetime, certainly different partners, and that this sexual activity happened independent of intimacy and friendship. And so there could have been, for example, a very deep, unique, Relationship, then that relationship could last a lifetime, but that doesn't mean that that's the only sexual partner that a person had. These things are happening in two different tracks. So if you work from that premise, then you might say, oh, I'm having fantasies about someone else, um, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with my marriage. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with my husband. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. It just means I'm a human being. And so it's totally understandable. Now, that doesn't mean you're necessarily gonna have an affair, doesn't mean you're gonna, you know, go to orgies or be swingers, or it doesn't imply any particular behavior. It simply gives you a different way to understand those appetites. And I think that part of the problem with the modern world is that we've been given a narrative of what kind of animal Homo sapiens is that's inaccurate and so we working from that inaccurate baseline we end up making all sorts of decisions that are destructive to us so yeah that's what i'm trying to say that that our fundamental understanding of what kind of an animal we are is is wrong and that needs to be addressed before we can really get into the symptoms of that misunderstanding
1: yeah and maybe we're just more bonobo or as much bonobo as we are chimp
2: Uh, On on the level of DNA, we share exactly the same amount of our DNA with chimps and bonobos. So anytime I read that, you know, the human's closest ancestor, the chimpanzee, my head explodes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Because
2: that's one of our closest ancestors. Um, But on the other side, sometimes people say, oh, in Sex at Dawn, they say that we're closer to bonobos than to chimps. That's also inaccurate. The way I think of it is like bonobos and chimps are my twin brothers. So they're very, very closely related to one another, but their next closest relative is me, right? That's, that's why we share the same amount with the two of them. Um, but in very sort of important fundamental ways, behaviorally, we're closer to bonobos. Uh, for example, a female chimp would never let another chimpanzee, male or female, hold her baby. Because infanticide is quite common among chimpanzees, whereas a bonobo mother will let other females particularly hold her infant within hours of being born. It's very common. Now, you know, you go to the supermarket and you see a woman and uh, she's got a baby and oh my God, what a beautiful baby. It's quite likely that that woman will let you touch and hold her baby. That's not unusual for humans. Um we share with bonobos lots of uh, sexual uh, traits. For example, bonobos are the only other mammal other than humans that have sex face to face. All other mammals are, you know, rear entry. So, bonobos look in each other's eyes when they have sex. They hold hands, they kiss. Um, you know, there, There's a lot of sex and food interaction You know, and you know the most sort of common human dating behavior is going out for dinner, right? It's so, yeah. There, behaviorally, we're far closer to bonobos than we are to chimpanzees, but in terms of DNA, exactly the same.
1: Uh, we're getting to the end of our time here, and in fact, uh, already over what I've I've booked you for. Would you mind if I ask you two more questions that you can answer as quickly or as incompletely as you want to? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, it, w- the one is super super easy, and it's just what books are you reading lately that you're enjoying?
2: Uh, I just read uh, Lost Connections by uh, Johan Hari. And I uh, had him on my podcast last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fantastic and ties in very much to what we're talking about because um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He, his first book was Chasing the Scream, which was about addiction. Oh, yeah. And uh, this book is about um, depression and anxiety disorders, the sort of epidemic of, of um distress mental distress that's sweeping the western world and he argues in both cases that that addiction and and this depression and anxiety are largely due to social causes to the the lack of meaning and community in the modern world. So that ties in very closely to what I'm arguing, which is that we have strayed away from the way that we were meant to live, the way we evolved to live. Mm -hmm. And so when we do, we suffer, whether it's obesity because our diet and our activity um, habits have strayed too far from the hunter-gatherer diet and activity, or it's uh, something less tangible like depression or addictive behavior because we've moved away from small, intimate groups of people who know each other very well and take care of each other. Um, so we we see this trauma all over, and uh, so I think Lost Connections was a very interesting book.
1: Mm, that is now on my to-read list. Um, and then the the last question is, if you could leave – If you could leave people who have listened to your interview today with one idea that you you would hope that they would seriously ponder and you think could be beneficial to them, what would it be?
2: It would be that the famous Hobbesian line about what life, human life was like before the advent of the state, in other words, before agriculture, um, is wrong. In every way, before the advent of the state, human life was not solitary, not poor, not nasty, not brutish, and not short. So everyone knows the line, you know, oh, life before the state was, most people just know nasty, brutish, and short, but the the full five is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's wrong in every respect.
1: Mm. Why do you think people believe it so much? Is it just because we want to believe that we're getting better and better?
2: Yeah, most people believe it just because it's so ubiquitous. But the other reason is, yeah, we want to believe that things are getting better. We have a bias toward a belief in progress. And it's almost sacrosanct to suggest that things aren't getting better. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you so much.
2: Sure. Thank you.
1: Look forward to your new book.
2: Thanks.
0: Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. But first, let's talk about the interview for a second.
1: I still can't do my pterodactyl noise. <laughs> no, please <laughs> don't. I don't
0: think the microphones would survive. <laughs> <Me> either. <laughs> so, um, why did we want Christopher Ryan on the podcast?
1: Well, because he wrote this book, Sex at Dawn, that was really the first of its kind. It caused this huge stir when it came out in 2010, and it still held up as a curiosity, as this counterintuitive, must-read book on sex, quote-unquote. There's something a little bit like a cult about it, I think, or about its image. I have personally this vivid memory of seeing it on a friend's shelf at a party, and this particular copy was black, and the cover features a painting of a female body from navel to like mid-thigh, demurely crossed legs, and a leaf held over her mons. It looked kind of like magical and somehow illicit. That's how I felt about the content before I read it and realized, oh, this is a bunch of science.
0: What did you think it was?
1: I wasn't totally sure. I just knew that it had, like, this reputation for being... Maybe scandals is the wrong word, but controversial, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Controversial. So I figured it was packed full of, like, illicit Kama Sutra things, which is right. a completely <laughs> uneducated assumption that I made before I even looked at the content. So please don't hold that against me, Christopher, or anybody else <laughs> listening. I quickly realized I was wrong, and I had judged a book by its cover.
0: But then, so we got Christopher Ryan on here, and also because, I mean, even if... We didn't learn a lot of Karma Sutra stuff from the book. Like the book is extremely important in terms of understanding who we are and how we can actually live better. So now that you got to talk to him, like, what do you remember about it? What, What stood out in the interview?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a little bit. And I guess this isn't like a traditional Simplify episode in that we don't have a lot of didactic advice, which I think is actually kind of cool. But I think an important idea here is that. The story that we've been telling ourselves about what kind of animal we are, where we come from and our sexual evolution, isn't totally accurate. And that spurred us to pathologize what might just come naturally to us and cause a lot of suffering. We're part bonobo, man. We, part of us is always gonna wanna Netflix and chill with like everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's okay.
1: And that's okay. I mean, you choose how you act on that with your partner in a right. consensual <laughs> consensual <laughs> conversation, but like that's a normal part of, of your human genetic makeup. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: it's like brain opening a little yeah, bit for me. A little bit. Okay. Well, then I think we should get to books.
1: Yeah, let's just do that.
0: Okay. So let's talk about what people should read if they want to learn more about all sorts of stuff: evolutionary psychology, monkeys, chimps, apes, primates.
1: Yeah, all that stuff. So a really good first pick, I think, is the Franz De Waal book. Actually, that Ryan mentions. It's uh, it's called Our Inner Ape by Franz De Waal. Ryan mentions DeWall in the conversation. Um, DeWall is this primatologist, and he's the guy who says that chimps use violence to get sex and bonobos use sex to avoid violence. And this book looks at their lifestyles. And it's also an invitation to really zoom out and consider our modern human conceptions of morality in question. Does this really work for us based upon what we know about our primate ancestors?
0: Yeah. Before this episode, I didn't know the difference between chimps and bonobos. And now we're talking about like primatology and the exact specifics of how they work in groups and power of females and da da da. That's yeah. like learning, man. That's cool.
1: Yeah, learning. And Ooh. one day
0: we'll also learn how to say bonobos.
1: <laughs> I'm bonobos. gonna keep practicing.
0: Bonobos. Bonobos. <laughs> bonobos. Bonobos. <laughs> bonobos.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cool. What, what else? So, another one is one that Christopher mentions that he just read. It's called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And on his recommendation, I picked it up, and I'm reading it now. Um, You can't get on Blinkist yet, but you probably will be able to soon. And um, it's an investigation of the quote-unquote real causes of depression and anxiety. And it basically, the thesis is that maybe they're not fixable with antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. It looks at flaws in the drug trials for the drugs that are used to treat depression, and offers these, quote, real causes of depression, plus ways to feel better. Um, it has mixed reviews, and I'm not entirely convinced of the the academic rigor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really interesting, and it's also always, I think, worthwhile to consider the social causes of the things that that make us mentally ill and make us unhappy. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, so far, that's a thing that I'm getting out of this book, and I think is actually really interesting.
0: How do you think it ties into the Christopher Ryan interview?
1: Well, it it ties in in that he mentioned it as as a book he just read and was enjoying or had Mm. enjoyed. And I think it also ties in in that it's a reexamination of something that we took for granted or we have been taking for granted, which is that you have depression or anxiety because your brain is broken. Mm. Because physiologically, there's something wrong with you and your levels of whatever, whatever are not right. And this book instead challenges that and says, well, maybe some shady things happened to you in the past or maybe you have inherited trauma from... I don't know, from back from way in your grandmother's era. And it's a thing that you have to work through and it's not going to get better with a pill. There are other ways to address this that don't mean medicating the crap out of yourself.
0: But also this idea of like understanding and just knowing the, knowing who you are, knowing where you come from. Yeah. Is that part of it?
1: I, I actually, I think that's a really, really accurate connection you just made. It's this, it's a new way to think about an old conception that repositions the future for you in a way that might bring relief so, it's a, it's an opening to a, reconsider something that you assumed was true.
0: Right. And there's something there maybe about why misunderstanding something is dangerous.
1: Yeah. you know That too. Yeah. And the very personal and societal implications that that can have.
0: Right. Like, we're all mis- misdiagnosing so much stuff.
1: So much stuff.
0: Well, okay. Can I transition cool. to a book I had an idea for? Yes. I would love I had, that. I had kind of two books on my mind. Mm-hmm. One was um, Our Bodies, Ourselves, which is a book that, mm-hmm. like it's i don't know and it's like a 100th reprinting and um it's a classic about like the human body and my mom gave it to me when i was like 12
1: oh you're supposed
0: to like give it to your kid before puberty basically oh and they like are like you oh got a book. yeah well you're like there's like pictures and you're like curious right when you're young i can read you the amazon.com um
1: lay that commercial poetry on me ben
0: it says, hailed by the New York Times as a feminist classic in America's best-selling book on women's health, the comprehensive guide to all aspects of women's health and sexuality, including menopause, birth control, childbirth, sexual health, sexual orientation, gender identity, mental health, and general well-being.
1: Wow. So it sounds like a good book. What's the other one?
0: Then, okay. So the other book, um, besides the classic, I was thinking like, we've been talking a lot about the past. We've been talking about our, our evolutionary, um, whatever, story. And I was thinking like, what about the future? And, you know, a book last year was a crazy bestseller that everyone was talking about was Homo Deus Uh, by Yuval Hariri. mm -hmm. And it's a book about like where we're going as a human race. And if we came from Homo sapien, we're heading towards this like new kind of human where we're going to be connected to each other and connected to the Internet and connected to the cloud and wearing wearables. And we're like kind of not exactly the same type of human being. Yeah like biologically we're changing yeah and that's even before like all the nano robots are going to go and like mess with our bloodstreams and stuff
1: i can't wait for those oh my god nano doctors things gonna be great <laughs>
0: yeah so um yeah so that's the one homo deus
1: awesome i you know i hadn't had that on my list but i think i need to add it cool, cool.
0: thanks for listening to this episode of simplify it was produced by me benjamin solar Caitlin Schiller, Nat Doroshkina, and Odie Constantino, who I think like is coming up with a new way to make a toenail clipper.
1: Really? Yeah, it's That's like his it's
0: hands-free. Oh. Yeah. i kind of a treat. Yeah.
1: Alright, well if you enjoyed this episode or feel that you learned something really interesting, could you please, please do us a favor? Send it to one person you like. That's it. If this person would particularly get something out of this episode, even better but yeah spread the word like I like to say podcaster conversations use it to start one with someone you like
0: bonobos tell them how you can pronounce that (laughs) yeah and thanks to everyone who's already subscribed Um, shout out to all the pod catchers out there pocket cast stitcher apple Podcasts, overcast google play if you don't have a favorite one you can also email us and we can tell you based on what phone what app you should get new feature for simplify this year yeah caitlin will personally walk you through downloading and installing all of the podcasters
1: the the look of abject horror on my face right now no i mean if you email me i'll email you something back but it might just be forwarding to to ben's address
0: (laughs) anyway if you do use those pocket catcher podcatchers give us a review give us a rating it um helps other people find out about us so thanks
1: Yeah. Awesome. So we're also on Twitter. I am at Caitlin Schiller. That's (laughs) C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R. All the letters. And Ben, you can be found at?
0: At B S T O.
1: Awesome. All right. So rad. Last thing. Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist. Blinkist, if you don't know, is a learning app that takes insights from the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into these little focused vitamin capsules of knowledge that are available in audio or text, and you can listen to them or read them in just 15 minutes.
0: Right, and if you want to try it out, we made a voucher code for Blinkist for this episode, so you can get 14 days free if you go to blinkist.com/friends and type in the voucher code and obviously our favorite word today, bonobo. 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 B O N O B O. And like, yeah, you get 14 more days if you can like pronounce it correctly and tell Kaylin and I how to do it.
1: Yes. Ugh. Thank you so much for sending in voice memos about the answer to the question, What have you learned was much easier than you initially thought it was? If you haven't done this yet and you want to because you want to be on a Simplify mid in the next season, then record us a voice memo. Tell us what you've learned is actually simpler or easier than you initially thought it was. And you can email it to me and Ben at podcastblinkist.com. At cool.
0: Then we'll be back next week with another episode of Simplify. In the meantime, be good. This is Ben. And this is Caitlin. Checking out.
1: Checking out. See you guys. Bye.